You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is Michael Carlin, and you have found the Uncorking a Story podcast. Today, I'm pleased to share with you my interview with Richard Owen, CEO and founder of CrowdLab. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, should I add mobile to my research toolbox? Well, Richard Owen explains why you should do this right now. Richard's been in the market research business for over 20 years and has worked at prestigious firms such as Millward Brown, Copernicus, and Holland Partners. Frustrated by the pace of change in the market research industry, Richard founded CrowdLab as a company designed to field high-quality research empowered by bleeding-edge technology to amplify the wonders of traditional research thinking and doing. If you want to know exactly what that means, then you'll have to listen to this podcast. So thank you, Richard. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. So we're getting formal all of a sudden. It's very formal. I know. Maybe maybe we shouldn't have the microphones. It's funny that we're doing this in a, in a focus group room, though. Yes. Is anyone watching? I don't think so. I mean, but what better place to, to do an interview for the, the QRCA you know, podcast than in a uh, focus group interviewing room? Context is everything. <laughs> so, uh, Richard, your uh, your company is CrowdLab. Yep. Um, company that you founded, and we'll talk a- about that journey. But before we get to where you are now, let's let's kind of talk about where it all began. So, what what you've been in the, in the research field for uh, <laughs> a little longer than I have. I think I just about made it into the eighties. <laughs> into the eighties. Yeah, I was um, actually the whole reason I'm even here is. Uh, is having a mother who uh, wouldn't let me laze around during my breaks from university, um, and basically said you need to you need to get a job and pay your way a little bit. Um, and where I grew up in the middle of England in Leamington Spa, uh, the only place anyone went and got some kind of part-time work was Millwall Brown. They were like you know the biggest employer in the town, so I spent my holidays and time off from university doing interviewing coding data processing checking tabs all of that sort of stuff um and and yeah so that's how i just literally fell into it um what were you studying at university at the time um i was studying management science uh which is just a posh name for business studies really (laughs) (laughs) um so i was at manchester um and it was one of those courses that's like a little bit of everything um it's a bit of marketing a bit of sort of um psychology a bit of sociology um there was a research option in in, in that as well um which is quite interesting because um, i remember having an argument with a a professor um about a paper i wrote on market research that he said uh you know this wasn't rigorous or robust enough um but i'd sort of said well i've i've sort of used my experience at you know one of britain's leading market research agencies to craft this paper um so i had an interesting early battle about you know, academics' views of, of research and the, the, almost the purity of it versus almost the, the commercial aspect of how you actually apply stuff. Um, so, yeah, so all through that period was 
finding my way about what research is really all about and how to how to use it. I remember being a young research manager um, in the early 90s, and I, I'd come out of uh, university. I'd studied psychology, so I knew you know, it was drilled into me how to do research properly. And I was on a, a, a PhD track, so I was doing undergraduate research and, and you know, doing statistical analysis uh, you know, since I was probably 19 years old. And I, you know, I got out of school and decided to work for a year before going back to get my PhD, which obviously never happened. And I remember, you know, putting designs together and somebody telling me, you know, you're, you're way too pure in your, in your <laughs> research. So it was kind of like that, you know, what, what happens in academia is just a little bit different than the practical application in the outside world. Ab- absolutely. I think the, um, you know, the conversation was always that if, if you tried to apply that methodological design from university in the real world, you'd be asking your clients to be spending, you know, millions of dollars uh, right. on, on, on the research when you knew you could do it for sort of 50000 So you, uh, you you spent some time at Millward Brown during your university days, and then when you graduated from university, back to Millward Brown? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd had a few interviews um, uh, in, in sort of client companies around marketing and, and, and research. Um, but, you know, again, maybe, uh, I don't know if it's fate or or idleness, but a, a job offer came from Millwall Brown. Um, obviously, you know, by that point, had sort of collected about two years with them. So it was quite a nice transition to go back. I knew everyone. So, yeah, it was it, it was pretty, pretty straightforward um, in the end to make that decision. And what was there anything about research that really motivated you or that you really found interesting? You know, I, I know you, you, your mom kind of pushed you into it. <laughs> And then you you graduate and you had this opportunity, which was fortunate. But was there was there like a, a motivation inside you? Did you did did it did it light your fire at all, or were you doing it just because it was it was available to you? Yeah, no, I, I, I sort of joke about how I how I was pushed into it or fell into it. But obviously during that period, I, what I, I really did, um, I'd, I'd always had an interest in numbers and statistics. You know, I was. Uh, I always loved my sport, and and cricket in England is a bit like baseball in America. It's very statistical. Um, so I'd always liked numbers, um, and obviously working in, in, in the quantitative teams that I did, um, just having that ability to, to play around with numbers. But I think very early on, what was really interesting to me was how do you tell stories out of numbers? Um, and, and I think that um, I was never that interested in just compiling data um, and reporting data but trying to find out meaning in it. and really ever since then I've, I've always always hoped I've done quantitative research with a slight qualitative sensibility if you will um, but yeah the, 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 the sheer interest in, in, in taking all that data and, and unearthing really interesting things was always quite quite motivating to and, and that was really the spark that when I did come out of university I went you know this is actually quite interesting because it's all about people in the end i always kind of thought that the best researchers whether they're qual or quant you know yeah you had the they would have sort of almost a a detective's mindset you know Mm -hmm. wanting to put the pieces of uh, of the puzzle together and you know kind of kind of you know find out what the story is you know whether using numbers or using verbatims or or whatever it is but there's there's that aspect of a good researcher i think that 
maybe always wanted to be a detective or, or could have been, you know, if, if things turned out differently. Uh, that's true. Well, my father was a policeman, so maybe there's something, <laughs> something in the DNA. A, my, my grandfather <laughs> was a policeman. Right, so right. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe there's like a gene. Yeah, I, think they, I mean, and I think your, your point is that you take the detective analogy and, and, you know, that's why, you know, today we've got so many sort of tools and different sources of data, but that's that's what you're trying to do all the time, isn't it? And I don't ever think, you know, you get the most out of a, of a research project when you just go, right, here's, here's the quant lens or here's the coil lens, like bringing those together constantly or finding other sources to shine a different lens on a, on a situation. Um, you're right, piece, piecing all that together to, to sort of get to the whodunit um, <laughs> answer. The whodunit, absolutely. So, so were you in, in the U.K., the entire time, or did you come back, come over to the States at all? Um, yeah, I, so uh, mid-90s, so 95, um, actually July the 4th, 1995. It's appropriate. I, I, came, to, uh, I came to the States um, with Mill Brown. Um, they offered a uh, one-year exchange program, effectively. Um, so someone from the U, one of the U.S. offices would sort of swap with you. Um, so, yeah, I was sort of 20, 25 years old, thought that sounds a year in America, sounds great. Um, and I stayed for thirteen. <laughs> where, where, where were you in? Where were you in? I was in Connecticut, in Fairfield, um, the headquarters. Yep, in Fairfield. Um, so I was there for um, about three years before I left Millwall Brown. I'd sort of decided America was uh, was quite exciting. So a year became two, became three, and then at that point, um, yeah, I, I, I sort of moved moved on from Millwall. Well, they they do say Fairfield, Connecticut, is the hotbed of activity, and I, I think you don't have a biased opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Connecticut. Connecticut was good. So, were you, were you working with the Millward Brown Interactive team at all while you were there, or because that was just starting? I mean, if I have my timeline correct, uh, there were two guys, Rex Briggs and Nigel Hollis, who were, um, I think, right around ninety five, ninety six, or it could have been ninety seven. They were doing some some groundbreaking breaking work in in ad effect, internet ad, ad effectiveness. Were you involved in that at all, or on the? Um, not not directly. I remember. Um, I'd known Nigel um, from the UK, so he was around in Fairfield. Um, I was helping out a lot at that time on the brand dynamics um, equity stuff they were doing. I think Rex arrived sort of just just as I was leaving. I think you're right, no more ninety seven. Maybe maybe it started around then, and then I left in ninety eight. So touched upon some of that, but um, yeah, it was a little bit after my time. But okay. um, yeah, they were they were they were on on it early. So then, uh, Millward Brown. Somehow, you wind up at at Holland Partners. Yes, um, I after so ninety eight, I left and I went to work for a uh, strategic marketing consultancy. Um, just to do, I just wanted. I'd have done all of the sort of you know brand and, and ad. What was that? What? Uh, Copernicus. Was that um, the guys from Yankelovich? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, Peter Creed, Kevin Clancy. Yeah, Kevin Clancy, that's yeah. the name I remember. Um, and, and basically, I, I went there because I'd only really ever done sort of, you know, brand and ad communications tracking. And obviously, that gave me a whole different lens of research. So we're doing a lot more segmentation type work, strategy type work. It was a lot, it was a lot more quantitative and numbers driven, but it, but it opened up a whole new avenue about, you know, how do brands come up with strategies before you worry about the, the sort of marketing? Um, so I was there for a couple of years. Um, and then, um, yeah, Hall & Partners came calling um, in, in 2000. Um, and that was really one of those decisions of, I, you know, the, the guys who were 
sort of setting up Hall and Partners USA. I'd worked for before, um, or ex-Mill Brown people, so I knew them. I liked working with them, um, and also just actually discovered that you know the, the the passion for for brands and communications and advertising was was really what I had interested. So the the sort of the side the sideways move to Copernicus was great and rounded me out, I think, a lot, but really passionate about sort of brand and comms ultimately. Yeah. So, I mean, g- going from uh, a company like Millward Brown, which was very, very established, to Copernicus, who was established by, you know, some people who had big names in the industry, to, to helping start up, you know, basically what was a startup in the States, right? Holland Partners was was relatively i mean it, it's still been in its infancy or maybe it's in its adolescence in in the uk but that that's a pretty big risk isn't it um yeah but you know that's part of like you know taking that taking that leap to come to the states it's sort of like that's, that's what life's all about really isn't it um yeah i mean i think you know you, you make those decisions i mean there was another another bigger risk almost immediately because within a year um i moved to open the chicago office of hall and partners so that that was really the sort of the risk, um, you know. But they wanted to open in Chicago. They had LA established, um, and they were sort of chatting around about trying to find someone. And I was just in a meeting and put my hand up and said, you know, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, and and yeah, and I think it, there's a little bit of security because yeah, you know, we had about maybe I was 15 employees in the in New York at the time. Um, <clears throat> so there's a little bit of, um, of of scale, and we had a couple of clients that were in Chicago. So I was flying back and forth anyway. So I thought, well, even if it's just me in a room servicing some Chicago clients, you know, you can make a living out of that. Um, so, yeah, a leap of faith, a risk, but, you know, faith in, in, in the good brand, good good ideas. Um, you know, the, the, the Hall & Partners um, way of doing research really appealed to me because, again, it was taking on the, the quantitative big boys with a, with a fresher, um, fresher approach and, again, slightly more qualitative style about it all. Um, and, 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 yeah, and, and it worked out all right. There's kind of that, that challenger mindset, that sort of going up against, you know, Rocky going up against Apollo or, you know, JetBlue going up against Delta, something like that. It, it was, and it was, I mean, it was particularly interesting in, in Chicago because, you know, you're right in the heart of, of packaged goods land, so you've got you know the, the Kellogg's and the Quakers and um, working on S.C. Johnson and all of those guys who had you know years and years of, of Mill Brown or Ipsos or whoever's tracking benchmarking. So you were and you were trying to find you know lots of different angles to get into those relationships. Um, and even if you knew you may not take you know you're not going to take the the global copy testing of, of, of Mill Brown away from someone. There's so much more you can do um, with 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 research, and, and and I think again going back to my Copernicus days, knowing a bit more about research around brand strategy, we were able to sort of flex the Hall and Partners offer from just a communications one to, to a bit more strategic, and and and, and yeah, and, and, and sort of found our way that way. So when does when does the itch come to to really start challenging the way research is is done? So, you know, I know I know a little bit about CrowdLab and what you do now, but it seems like you're even within Holland Partners when you were when you were there, you know, you had um an innovation kind of bent to you. That was your title at one point, I think. Yeah, right? that's right. So, what when, when just tell me that that journey of experimentation and sort of pushing the envelope in terms of technology. Yeah, I think I mean what, <clears throat> largely out of out of, you know, boredom in a sense of you know there's 
you always feel like you can only do so many presentations, say, in a tracking study, keeping it interesting. Um, and so you constantly, I was always just constantly thinking, how can you make this this better? How can how can we do research better? And then obviously the internet happened, and then and so for a long time I was spending time going, okay, we've got to get everything online. So you go through that whole process. Um, but then as technology came, it just became obvious to me that you know technology was the way you were going to reinvent methodology, um, and why you know why not embrace it? And and you know sometimes you you might fail with some of that, but yeah, I think just just a restlessness to to try the latest thing. Interestingly, what propelled me to start CrowdLab was in the innovation role at Hall & Partners you know I, I was sort of being sold to by suppliers and you'd see research suppliers come in and use technology to for, for some reason but you think well you've you sort of develop that idea almost out of the research back room of going how can we make the research process better or more efficient or cleverer but hadn't really thought about you know the participants and, and the people we interview and how you make their experience better. So yes, it was all very efficient, but it wasn't particularly um, you know intuitive or user friendly. Or you'd have tech companies coming in with some really nice piece of kit, but you're sort of going, how do you really apply that to research in in, in a rigorous, sensible kind of way? Otherwise, it's just sort of gimmickry. Um, and so when we started CrowdLab, um, it was myself and couple of friends of mine who are in the technology business and we always tried from the start to go let's have research and technology together therefore we know that we can create technologies that are applicable in the right way in research um, but also we can you know we, we can make sure we're we're thinking about technology from a user point of view and and, and that always was going to lead us to developing an approach that had to rewrite research methodology rules as well as technology. Yeah, interesting what you say in terms of, you know, being pitched to by companies that, you know, have, you know, were, were research and then fit kind of try to put online into it. So I remember back in 90, 96 or 97, I had started, uh, I was young into my career at an interactive ad agency and we would sell online focus groups to to clients as part of you know pre-testing you know digital creative and what what we found cuz we we also did traditional groups as well because our client and this was 96 so mm-hmm. yes. there weren't a lot of people who were putting a lot of faith in in online for any kind of research whether it's qualitative or quantitative and companies had started coming out with online focus groups which were basically big chat rooms where people would go and you would just have a discussion by typing back and forth. You didn't see anybody. You didn't hear anybody. There was no emotion involved. And it was a case of, hey, we can, we can do this chat style, so we'll just take the traditional focus group model and do it online. And even after 9-11, when people didn't want to get on airplanes, you couldn't sell these things. Yeah. You know, they just... They they were just missing something, and and I think it's they were missing they were missing the emotion they were missing you know clients wanting to see hear um, and experience what a consumer was doing uh, or th- saying or thinking and how they were saying it. So I, I think I agree with you in terms of you know you, you can't start um, coming up with uh, a new research tool if you're just thinking about it in a traditional sense and how you can apply it online. I c- c- completely agree. I mean, that's one of the biggest frustrations I had and, and, and what I've always sort of spoken about, you know, growing CrowdLab is is just putting 
old things on new things is no way forward. You know, in the quant world, it's like let's put online surveys on phones. You know, therefore you des- you've got a survey that's designed to be you know, clicked with 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 a mouse on a phone, which is designed for fingers to do playing. I think the other the point about qualitative, you know, I, I completely agree as well. Is you know, through through all of my time at Holland Partners, we worked very closely. Had a really really good qualitative division and, and you know and you're, you're sort of keeping keeping those fires burning um, but we did a lot of integrated work um, and we you know really got to understand the, the, the power of qualitative and then the skills of, of moderators to um, to get that draw that emotion out and read the room and all of those sort of you know um, things that you would you just wouldn't get from from an online type focus group and so we're always trying to. It's, it's funny. So sometimes when you're in this business, everyone says, you know, oh, you're 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 the death of qualitative. You're putting qualitative researchers out of business. But we never come up with methodologies that are, that are designed to do that. What we're trying to do is give more tools so that you can draw more of that. So, you know, simple examples of of, of doing, you know, sort of autoethnographic pre-tasking. So you get a window into people's lives, um, and and you can draw some of that. Um, out and then use that as stimulus in your group. So instead of you know, discussing um, what people remember about doing something, you can be replaying sort of clips of video or photographs or things people have done at the time they're doing them um, and use that to then go deeper with them when you've got the time. But it's always about complementing and enhancing. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I've been reading about the death of qualitative research and the death of focus groups for almost 20 years. And yeah. you know, I, I do more and more groups every year. You know, and I, and I have friends who do more and more you know, interviews or we're, we're always talking to people. But the difference is I think technology has enabled our ability to just know more about the people who we're interviewing. So, so, so often, you know, if we're doing ethnographies, we're having people do online pre-tasks or, yeah. uh, um, you know, in, in some cases – uh, mobile diaries, yeah. um, just so we learn more about people. Well, and I think there's, you know, also when you're, if you're wanting to do a more sort of ethnographic or in-home or company shopping, that kind of, of, of research, you know, we, we also do a lot where we say maybe take a larger sample, say 40, 50 people, and they might complete some, some work on the phone. You can see all of that output, and then you go and visit, you know, the 12 people with the most relevant or interesting stories so that you're... Almost like you're utilizing the the budget much more effectively and getting a lot more value and insight because you can then go and form your insights and conclusions on the twelve people you visited, but you've still got sort of the collateral of the of, of the bigger group. So I think, yeah, mixing up the methodologies constantly and blending them in some way is has got to be sort of better value and, and more fun, I think, as yeah. well. So just going back to when you started CrowdLab, mm. so you're starting it with uh, with researchers and sort of tech guys, yeah. Um, so was it uh, was it easy? I mean, did you hit a home run your your first year out of the gate, or what was the journey like? <laughs> um, the journey's been uh, interesting. Is it the journey is always more interesting than the destination, isn't it? Um, we we had some initial successes. Um, I mean, we 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 quite quickly got a sort of um, you know a, a working version of the platform up and running fairly quickly. So we. We sort of, I'd started this in sort of Jan, Feb of 2011, and, and by April we'd be doing our first projects. Um, we learned a lot of every project, you know, things, you, you know, all those things that you don't necessarily think of, um, you know, come come into play and think, okay, well, yeah, that doesn't work quite like how we thought it would, or, you know, technology starts shifting and you're, it's so quickly that you're, you're, you're constantly um, building new things. But 
the bigger challenge was was really convincing people that that this was this was a viable method and you know I'd, I'd sort of always talk about our, our sort of three-year journey as sort of year one was you know send people like research through mobile application is actually of some use <laughs> everyone's been like that's nah, fine I'll, I'll stick with what i'm doing people then said like, okay yeah i can see some benefit in that but then year two was sort of actually more working out as i said the the, the right sort of methodologies and applications of the platform because the platform's great but again how do you actually use it for methodology and then really th- year three last year was when Everyone said, well, like, oh, okay, mobile, yeah, it's it's not going away, is it? It's so you know our, our business growth. You know, we we doubled in size last year, and, and I think that reflects that people are more used to it. And, and the conversations now become much more about why is your platform better than someone else's, rather than what's the point of this at all. Yeah, it's funny we have we have a client who I won't name, but they have a segment of their consumers called cultural curators. And, you know, it's it's really, you know, they, they tend to be a little bit younger and think of them as more, you know, millennial in nature. And they walk around all day long. I mean, we all do with our phones in our pockets, but they're curating their lives, mm. you know, almost, you know, every 30 minutes, taking pictures, uploading them to social media. You know, they're actually putting out to the world what's on their mind at any given time, how they feel about current events. You know what happened at a at a party last night. So they're curating their lives, and it, it strikes me that if if we're and we as like the collective marketing and research community are not using mobile to tap into that curation from a, a research and insight standpoint, then you know we're we're missing we're missing a huge opportunity. Uh, yeah, and I think that's it comes back to my point about sort of reinventing methodology because people are doing all of that stuff naturally. Um, so if you're asking them to take part in a research project, you've, you've got to fit in with, with how they're, they're doing that stuff so that when they, you know, when they upload content into, into the research platform, it feels as natural and as simple and as intuitive um, as if they were uploading it to, to, to say, social media. Because I think, you know, if you make it feel like a clunky old research project on a phone they're going to disengage with it and, and you're not going to tap into exactly what, what you what you just described. And again, that's that's where thinking about the way people live, the way people use technology, the way you know they're socialising it is, is a core part of thinking through how projects should be sort of scripted um, in order to get you the stuff that you can then on the back end sort of curate for your clients. And one of the you know, since since this is going out to a bunch of people who do qualitative research for a living one of the applications that I, I really like about mobile um, and, and what CrowdLab does is the ability to kind of take the researcher out of the ethnography, which sounds kind of funny, especially to somebody who does a ton of ethnography. <laughs> it's like, you're trying to get rid of my job. But, you know, when, you, when I'm walking through a store with somebody, um, uh, two things are going through my mind. One, is the manager going to throw me out? Because that's happened before, and I've had the <laughs> cops called on me. Um, because we're interviewing somebody in, in their store. But also, you know, am I getting a natural slice of what happens in the shopper's mindset when they're shopping for body wash or when they're shopping for you know uh, frozen foods or, or whatever the category is? So I'm kind of wondering in my head, you know, am I really getting a sense of someone's life? Because when you're standing behind somebody in a shopping cart and then asking them questions, it feels really unnatural. 
And the thought of being able to give somebody a bunch of tasks on a phone, which they'll have with them anyway. And many times if you go to a grocery store, people are on their phones texting or doing whatever. It just seems like a natural component. Have them capture what you need them to capture and then follow up with them, you know, show them their footage and follow up with them uh, with an interview offsite somewhere. Yeah, I think I think it starts to get at, you know, how researchers need to sort of almost recast themselves in a different way because you're yeah, you're allowing people to give you that content much more naturally, as, exactly as, as you say, so that they haven't got you sort of stood there <laughs> chipping away asking questions of their every move. So you let them do that natural, you get that content. But then I think people are quite, you know, people are quite poor at making sort of any meaning out of that. And then I think that's where the, the follow-up stuff with the researcher sort of, you know, taking them back to those moments um, be- becomes the skill um, of, of, of mo- almost moderating them back through that, that, that narrative but the narrative based on actually what was going on rather than, you know, take me back to that shopping trip. You know, you, people can't remember what they had for breakfast this morning, let alone what really happened on that shopping trip. So we've seen that work really well where, you know, you can literally, everything is sort of time-stamped and geo. You literally go, like, in the store last Thursday at 3 o'clock, you know, you took this picture and you said this thing that was about being angry or frustrated or, or whatever let's talk about that and again i think the skill then is you don't have to almost worry so much as a as a a moderator of trying to coax that out of them you've got it you can then spend time really pursuing the the emotions behind that anger and frustration that happened at the time and i think that 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 is a sort of a almost a slightly different skill around curation and distilling of, of, of 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 content versus you know asking questions of people um, I mean, you seem, for, for somebody who spent a lot of their time doing quantitative research, you seem to have a, a pretty good grasp on, on qualitative. Um, it was funny, I was sitting in, in a presentation yesterday, and, uh, um, you know, I, I was joking with somebody who was a quantitative researcher sat next to me. I said, uh, I don't like numbers. And she looks at me and says, I don't like feelings. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny, but you seem to have that. You seem to have a good grasp of, of the two. How do you see them blending? And because I, I think that's kind of where our future is is going. It's it's things shouldn't be called one thing or the other. There should be kind of a blend. And, and I'm just curious as to your your points of view on that. Yeah, I think uh, to- totally blend. I mean, I, I remember once going to to a pitch with the client and introducing two directors and said, "Here's my qualitative director." qualitative director and here's my quantitative director and the clients went like what do i care um and it was always quite revealing because it's like yeah we're we're all here together trying to find ways to answer your problems and in a sense that client's going you know i don't really mind where the the golden insight comes from or how you guys go about it just go off and do your thing and come back and and nail the brief and nail my problem and and and, and that has always sort of been been quite um quite impactful on me and that, I think the other thing as well, the best, the best qualitative researchers I've worked with all started out in quant. Um, and I think what that skill has led them to is you, you know, developing the moderation skills, but analytically sort of being able to pr- bring a sort of a bit, lot more structure to, um, to the way they go through qualitative analysis, which I think is a really useful blend. So 
all these things always struck me that actually there's so many shared skills here. And yes, some people have, um, and it requires a lot more training and, you know, and, and accreditation and, and, and professionalism to have the skill to moderate a focus group. And I think for people like me who are a bit more quanty, that's a skill I don't have. And, you know, to, to, to your point about <laughs> the client thing, I don't like feelings, I know that I wouldn't be very good at navigating through a group of people whose opinions I may or may not agree with at <laughs> the right. time. And that's, that is a real skill to keep mining information, even if, if the dynamic of the room is going a certain way. So that's where I see the sort of the real unique skills of a qualitative researcher but you know bringing that bringing that back and looking then at numbers you know to coexist has got to be the better way you know quant gives you great structure around a problem you can go you know we've spoken to 500 people and we know areas a b and c or what's going on out there but obviously the qualitative can then take take that structure and really really go deep and understand understand why it's just such a natural fit and i've always been a bit confused as to why the industry has kind of kept it so siloed. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's it's because um, clients, oftentimes clients come with you know I want to do some groups. Yeah, you know they they, they come with a methodology in in mind, um, and then there are certain companies they just don't think about for for you know one or the other. So mm. if if you know thinking of the company who does their tracking, what can they really be good at? qualitative i mean they're so good at this can they really be good at the other so i think there's there's some like changes to the conversation that have to happen but, there. but i think you know i think on that point you you, you know you could be right of going you know if, if, if you're a hardcore quant tracking house then i would worry if you know i wouldn't want you necessarily coming in and doing the groups because of that skill set but what's wrong with putting my you know skilled trusted qualitative agency <laughs> in the room with the quant tracking house going you've all been you know about my brand and my issues like get together and you know and, and work together you know I, I as the client shouldn't have to sort of spend too much time you know marrying all these sources of information like yeah. you guys get together and i think um i, th I think i've seen in, in in quite a few instances more recently where um where you do see agencies who on the surface are either competitors or do different things coming together a bit more on 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 projects and clients sort of trying to run workshops and getting agencies to sort of cross-fertilize ideas, and, and that's the way it should be. I agree, especially, um, you know, when, when I was a, uh, an independent, so I, I ran my own business for a while, um, one of the, the most successful projects I ever did was, um, it was target illumination for, um, you know, people uh, who use disposable razors. I mean, I know that sounds exciting. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they hired me to do the qual and a big research firm to do the quant. Um, and just we were together on every single phase of it. Mm -hmm. So they came to all of our ethnographies, our focus groups, our work sessions. And I feel like they, they being the, the, quant, the quant group, got a lot out of just seeing, hearing, and experiencing these consumers. And I got a lot out of kind of partnering with them after their analysis. We started with Qual, ended with Quant, and then just kind of working together to frame the story, one holistic story. And that's what the client really wanted. They wanted one holistic story with bits and pieces from each method. Absolutely. We used to, when we did a lot of segmentation when I was in Chicago at H&P, and that's sort of how we tried to run them. So you do some qualitative exploratory. That would give you a sense of maybe here's the dynamics of the category or the kinds of typologies of people. 
which would anchor a quantitative segmentation. But then once we'd got the the segmentation solution, the you know the hardcore analytics bit of it, and you go, well, okay, we've got six segments. We'd get the qual researchers to come back into the room for a day, two days of brainstorming, to go, okay, we need to turn these segments in back into real people. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of the time, we we would we would look at it and go. Okay, this segment, you know, it all fits together statistically. This cluster of people, but you know, we we can't really. What's re- what's the real thing? And the qualitative research, like, oh, that's just like the people we saw in Atlanta. And actually, what motivates them is X, Y, and Z. And suddenly, light bulbs go off and go like, that's. And I remember in it, we did a beer segmentation um, for for a Mexican brewer um, about the U.S. import market, and we had a segment of people who they were younger. So our, our sort of quantitative read was, you know. They, they're younger, they're, they, they just sort of haven't formed opinions about brands, so they didn't have many attachments, so, you know, they're, they're not that interesting. And actually, when we sat down and worked with the qualitative researchers, like, it's not about sort of just being, you know, almost novices, it's that they're actually sort of followers. Like, if you think about the people we met here and the journeys we went on, there is actually a segment of people who, who, who are just more followers. So it's not that they're just young and novices and haven't found the brand for them, it's, it's a, it was a mindset about uh, about looking for, for leaders, and actually they could then sync that segment up with a with a more sort of leading edge segment. But it, it, it just gave a real different nuance to, to what was it. So yeah, you you couldn't have done those projects um, successfully if you'd have just said, "Here's the quant segments." You know, over to you, Mr. Client. So going going back to mobile, um, and and remembering that this is going out to a bunch of moderators mm-hmm. um, and clients too. Uh, what can what can qual researchers do, or how should they be thinking about mobile um, as a way of adding adding mobile to their toolbox? So, what are, what are some some ways they can think about adding mobile? Yeah, so I think you, you mentioned before target illumination and, and, and segmentation. I mean, you know, great windows into into people's lives. So we've we've done projects, you know, the, the, a week in the life of a mum. Um, you know, what are all those pain and pleasure points? What's it like to be a mum? So any form of, of that illumination in, 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 into a target, just let, just recruit them off, off some, you know, off, maybe off a segmentation screener and just let them run at it um, and, and, and just ob- sit back and observe. And then, as we've said before, you could potentially do some follow-up depths to, to probe a bit more. So it was good. Enhancing your groups, I think, is, is another way. We've talked about pre-tasking and bringing real-life stimulus into the groups. Um, also, post-group reflections we've found quite useful too. So you've, you've got people in the group, they've talked about an ad, a concept, whatever the discussion may be. You know, mobile gives them the chance to continue the dialogue. So go back, you know, go back to your life, back in the real world, talk to your husband, talk to your kids. Do you, you still feel the same way about this? Now you're outside the group context. You know, it's only, a, you know, it's only two or three more days. You're doing your analysis. You're just getting some more sound bites back from them. Um, we've done projects as well where, you know, um, for, for new product innovations and got people to sort of go back to their life and think about, um, okay, how would you actually use that product and, and record all the moments of use. And this is where we go back to blending qual and quant. Um, 20, no, sorry, 48 people across the groups so ended up with about 250 use moments in real life. And what was fascinating about this one is everyone got excited about this new um, new app from a telecom provider, all the bells and whistles and geo stuff you could do. But all the use moments at home were sat, sat on their couches accessing a free landline feature so they could make free calls. And so 
it was like actually in the real world people are kind of lazy and cheap and <laughs> don't forget that when you launch all the bells and whistles stuff so all of that around groups um we've done event stuff so when brands are sponsoring events we did something at the sundance film festival using um participants in the research as your eyes and ears on the ground so we did a combination of x interviews to provide some robustness around who remembered what brands sponsoring what but also recruited a group of, of about a dozen attendees and almost briefed them and told them what we were interested in and then used the app to go around and record instances of this, that and the other, interview people, you know, do, do some of your job. But, you know, get, getting that eyes and ears on the ground um, is, is, is always valuable. Yeah, it's just listening to you talk, it would be cool to, to use some of the footage, like mobile self-generated um, video footage as, as part of almost a documentary. If we could find a client who'd be interested, it would like a really interesting topic. Um, and, and maybe it's something that's more sensitive where people are, you know, willing to open up to themselves with the anonymity of, of a screen. Um, but I think that would be interesting, you know, do some, do something really, really high touch. And then f- after you've built rapport with them sort of through that first phase, kind of then doing more of the in-depth maybe, uh, stuff and, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an amateur filmmaker with, uh, you know, as a hobby. But you know, that's where I kind of go to. It'd be cool to do some kind of a documentary film style thing on. Yeah, using I mean, this. Uh, absolutely. And you know, I think you can do those mini films a little bit, even off 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 the pretest. Because if you've got your your sort of eight respondents in in, in your focus group facility, you. Um, you know, if you've stitched together, say, a three-minute film based on some of the highlights of how they, you know, their, their coffee morning routines, you know, and that's what you kick the groups off with. It's sort of like you've, you've all been engaged in the project. I want to show you a film, and it's this little mini documentary about, you know, coffee in the morning, and that just kicks off the, 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 the debate. And, yeah, I think you could, you could take that out and produce some kind of 90-minute Michael Moore epic on I think so. <laughs> I mean, he's got himself in some hot water recently. Though, so. I saw something on the news. <laughs> I, I'm not aware of the story, but, yeah, yeah I saw something that was kicking off. I think the the news tends to blow. Uh, you know, I think we're in a slow news cycle right now, apparently, so we're, <laughs> we're talking about you know people's reactions to movies instead of probably some more importance. You know, yeah. it's funny. We had the State of the Union address uh, a few nights ago, and I think more people were talking about you know what Michael Moore had to say about a movie, or what Seth Rogen had to say about a movie, then yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what the president had to say about the state of the country. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about America, but uh, yeah, I don't think that's just America. I probably think, not. Uh, yeah. uh, well, I think uh, I think we're good. Do you feel great. good? I feel great. I Thanks feel good for, too. Uh, talking to no, me. No, thank you. And uh, you know, best wishes for for CrowdLab. Yeah, and thank you very much. And let's keep on reinventing research. Let's do it. Cheers. Okay. Well, I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Richard Owen uh, as much as I enjoyed interviewing Richard. If you have any ideas on somebody who you think would be a great interview for Uncorking a Story, please let me know. You can reach out to me at mike at uncorkingastory.com or feel free to visit the website www.uncorkingastory.com.